as healthcare professionals, we want to prevent problems as much as we can. Preventing is better than curing. And a lot of times we can get people who have not yet hit rock bottom. Uh, they've not yet destroyed their lives and have them pull out of it. And what's important is that the earlier you catch this illness, the easier it is to treat. Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Welcome to the Body, Mind, Empowerment Podcast. I'm your host, Similand, and our guest today is Dr. Daniel Lieberman. Dr. Lieberman is a psychiatrist and professor at George Washington University. He has published over 50 papers on behavioral science and has a book called The Molecule of More. This episode is brought to you by Perfect Keto. Perfect Keto keto-friendly snacks and supplements are packed with quality ingredients that provide sustained energy to fuel your body and mind. Using strictly high-quality ingredients and no garbage means you're going to skip any unnecessary spikes to your blood sugar and you'll feel great for hours. I think Perfect Keto has the highest quality supplements for the ketogenic diet and I use their ketones for both physical and cognitive performance. They also have amazing MCT powder that you can add to your coffee as well as collagen powder that's great for the skin. Perfect Keto has a limited time offer for you. If you buy one of the products, you can get one for 40% off with the code SEAM40. So head over to perfectketo.com forward slash SEAM40 and let's get on with the show. Dr. Lieberman, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, how did you get into uh, psychiatry and uh, behavioral sciences? Can you give like a brief background story? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, when I was in college, I uh, was very interested in philosophy. Um, and by the time I finished, I sort of decided that the single most interesting thing in the world was the human mind. And that's what led me down the path towards psychiatry. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Like the human mind is uh, very mysterious and uh, we don't really know that much about it. And it's something like um, philosophers and uh, scientists have been thinking about for centuries and you know, thousands of years. Psychiatry is probably the youngest of the medical specialties um, in terms of the tools we have to approach it from a biological standpoint. Mm -hmm. And I think that the reason for that is because the brain is so complicated. It's so much more complicated than, let's say, a kidney or the heart. And, you know, in some ways that makes psychiatry very difficult because we can't make diagnoses by doing blood tests or neuroimaging scans. But on the other hand, it can also be a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. And that's because we don't just get laboratory tests on patients we've got to talk with patients. We're not just focused on the brain, we're also focused on the mind. Um, and that makes the practice of psychiatry a whole lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. Because, uh, you know, as I understand, like there's a difference between the brain in its physical form and the mind in terms of like its psychological aspects. So they're very connected to each other, but they're like somewhat distinct things. You know, I think that there's really not a whole lot of consensus about what the difference is. There are strict materialists who believe that the mind is nothing but the activity of neurons, cells in the brain. Um, if you want to say that the mind is different from the brain, um, you're kind of taking a leap because you are hypothesizing that there is something there besides atoms and molecules, that, that there is an additional spiritual component that science is incapable of studying. 
Um, it, it's not necessarily scientific, but I think that it's hard to say that based on our subjective experience, what it feels like to be a human being, to possess a brain, it, it's hard to say that all there is are atoms and molecules. It feels like we are something more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a, um, the body-mind dualism <laughs> is the problem called. And it's definitely like very controversial and something uh, I myself don't know the answer to either. So <laughs> all, the, all the scientists are also like just uh, speculating almost. Yeah, I think that's right. You, you know, scientists tend to be strict materialists. But the general public is not. Um, I, I think the vast majority of Americans uh, believe in some kind of God, uh, and certainly they believe in a soul. Um, and and it, it's a funny contradiction because, you know, as good modern Westerners, we like to believe that we approach the world in a scientific manner. But when it comes to the mind, that's a very important exception in which most people are not scientific. Yeah, that's true. But in uh, psychology or psychiatry, uh, you do have to uh, approach the, let's say, case study or these people uh, more as just uh, material scientists because, uh, you know, the psychiatry involves like, you know, being, being a human being with a brain and with a mind in uh, like a multitude inside a collective so to say you're inside a world and you're not like just looking at the neurons and the brain chemistry you have to also like understand the all the uh, the other relationships the the person has with themselves as well as their environment yeah that is so true but one of the wonderful things about psychiatry is that we simultaneously approach things from both directions we we use the biological model, the materialist model, to prescribe medications, and then we complement that with a uh, more psychological model in which we talk with patients and we help them do a better job with their environment, with their relationships. And we call it the biopsychosocial model because we're really dealing with three domains, the biological substrate of the brain, the psychological experience of the individual, and uh, their social experience as well, because that has probably just as much an effect on their behavior, um, the outside world they live in, as the inside world does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you used to work with uh, people who had uh, schizophrenia and uh, hallucinations. Yes, I still do. I still okay. do. Um, okay. Those are, you know, patients with schizophrenia are sort of the bread and butter of most psychiatrists. And, um, you know, there are some people who doubt whether psychiatric illness is real. Um, they think, well, maybe this is just people who are different, uh, who society just can't deal with. When you work with schizophrenics, you realize this is a medical illness. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's a serious disruption of brain functioning um, and also very, very interesting. Right. What is the cause then? Is it like some lifestyle factors or genetics or... Um, it's probably uh, in a large part genetics. If you have identical twins, these are individuals who have the same genetics, uh, the same DNA, um, and one of them has schizophrenia, there's a 50% chance the other one has schizophrenia. So that allows us to estimate that the genetic contribution is probably about 50%. The other contribution we don't know a whole lot about. Um, We know that if somebody has a high degree of vulnerability, drug use can bring it out. 
we're seeing that more and more with marijuana as um, more potent strains come to market and legalization leads to mm. greater levels of consumption. Uh, we've also seen that with cocaine. There is also a, a theory that it might have something to do with infection. Uh, mm. People who are born at certain times of year, um, like the winter time, when the, there's more um, colds and viruses going around, seem to have a higher risk of schizophrenia. Mm. So there is both an environmental and a genetic component but we are still trying to tease these apart and figure out um, the roles that they play. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Uh, but what about, you mentioned uh, some imbalances in the brain's uh, chemistry. How does uh, that you know, uh, correlate with that? Currently, psychiatrists are using what's called the um, dopamine model of schizophrenia. Uh, and we focus on dopamine excess in a certain circuit of the brain. The technical term of the circuit is the mesolimbic circuit. In our book, we call it the desire circuit mm -hmm. because the same circuit that's responsible for psychosis is also responsible for motivation, for desire, and even for reward. It's a very strange linkage, um, but it's also extremely fascinating. It's something that we go into uh, in great detail in the chapter, um, Creativity and Madness. Um, the link between the brain at its best, creating things that never existed before and have the potential to change the world, and the brain at its worst, uh, and that is mental illness. Mm -hmm. So we, we focus on the neurotransmitter dopamine, and the medications we use to treat it are medications that block dopamine in this circuit. Mm -hmm. And we do a pretty good job with things like hallucinations and delusions we do less of a good job with some of the other symptoms of schizophrenia. Um, these are sometimes called the negative symptoms because they represent an absence of things that we see in healthy people. Uh, okay. We see decreased motivation. We see decreased language production. We see decreased interest in their environment. Um, and these are areas we've been a little bit less successful in terms of treatment. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think like the dopamine as a as a molecule is also like misunderstood or like the misconception is that it's this primarily like a pleasure molecule that makes you feel good but as you said it's more of like this feeling of reward and uh, kind of fulfillment or motivation that makes you feel rewarded yes that's right most people who've heard of dopamine um, have heard of it as the pleasure molecule and that's certainly part of the story dopamine rewards us when we do things that um will promote our evolutionary success um, mm. when we eat when we're hungry, when we find an exciting reproductive partner, when we win a competition. But really, dopamine in a broader sense is about maximizing future resources. Yes, it rewards us when we do evolutionarily positive things, but it also does things like, as we mentioned, it causes us to have motivation, to seek out the things that we need. It focuses our interest on the future. It allows us to make long-term plans and carry out complex multi-step strategies. Um, and it also helps us with creativity. It helps us create things that will make the world a better place. Mm, yeah, I, I totally agree. Like, if we didn't have like any motivation or any mo any dopamine, then we would yeah just like loiter or uh, wait, waste away in in a sense. 
we compare people who might have a little bit too much dopamine. Um, and these are the uh, type A workaholics who, um, it doesn't matter how much money they make, they just want to make more. Um, they spend all of their time in the office and they don't step back and smell the roses. Uh, they don't take time off and just enjoy being with family and friends. And we compare that to the people who perhaps may have a little bit too little dopamine and we call them the basement dwelling pot smokers who really have no interest in making the future better, uh, possibly even no interest in taking a shower and, and really just focus on uh, present indulgences. Yeah, you mentioned that in the book as well, that we're kind of obsessed with the things that we want, but after we get them, we get bored and we're going to go back into this cycle of wanting more. That's right. You know, the brain divides our world um, into what we have and what we don't have. Uh, and that makes a lot of sense from an evolutionary point of view. You know, we've got the expression, either you have it or you don't. To our evolutionary ancestors, that could be either you have it or you're dead. Mm -hmm. So, um, so from the brain's point of view, resources you have, things like food, tools, shelter, reproductive partners are fundamentally different than resources you don't have and you need. Dopamine is the brain chemical that coordinates brain activity when we're focused on things that we don't have, but it doesn't process things that we do have. And what that means is that you've got all of this dopaminergic drive, motivation, and pleasure as you seek something out. Mm -hmm. uh, let's say that you're interested in buying a new cell phone and you're going online and you're researching all the different features. That's exciting. Um, that's dopamine. But as soon as you buy the cell phone, it's no longer something you don't have. It becomes something you do have. And so dopamine completely shuts off because it doesn't process that kind of thing. And that can lead to this letdown that we sometimes call buyer's remorse. And it can happen in all kinds of areas. Uh, one of the areas we focus on is love, that sometimes people are obsessed with a potential partner. They, they, can't, they can't do anything but think about her. Uh, and as soon as they get that person, um, the brain does a complete shift in how it's processing the experience and some of those people will lose interest right at that moment. Yeah, yeah that's, that's unfortunate. <laughs> and it's kind of crazy that the human uh, brain is, uh, you know, working like that. But that can probably also lead to, you know, addictions and that sort of things. Yeah, you know, I think it's worth pointing out that the human brain evolved for evolutionary advantages. It didn't evolve to make us happy. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, the things that best promote our survival as a species are things that often um, do not make us happy. Hmm. You know, if we were always happy, we would just sit around enjoying our happiness <laughs> and um, we might just starve to death. Um, and so it requires unhappiness. It requires dissatisfaction uh, for us to make progress in this world. Hmm. And that's what our brain gives us, unhappiness and dissatisfaction. Yeah, like, and especially for like, uh, you can also apply the same idea, you know, that, that that's like, actually, I think it's a good thing to a certain extent, because if we didn't be, if we, if you we weren't dissatisfied, then society wouldn't progress either. And we, we as a person would also stagnate and uh, we wouldn't, uh, you know, get better and uh, improve ourselves. That's right. That's right. And I think that viewing happiness as the goal of life is a legitimate point of view, but another 
point of view in terms of the goal of life is meaning. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you were to ask an artist who, who is, who is obsessed with their art, but at the same time miserable, would you give up your art in return for happiness? 99% of them would say no. And so I think that sometimes we pursue happiness, but at other times we pursue meaning. And that involves growth, creativity, and progress. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you read the book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And mm. he's, he's definitely, he was also a psychologist and he, uh, he yeah, came to the conclusion that uh, people can uh, kind of endure anything if they have like a bigger why and they have like this thing uh, towards the pursue. That's right. I, I think that um, Nietzsche said something along of show me the why and I will show you the how. <laughs> yeah. If, if there's a reason, man will figure out how to do it. Yeah, that's for sure. And what about uh, dopamine and addiction? Like does too much dopamine lead to addictive behavior? Right. So the, the purpose of dopamine is to, um, one of the purposes is to reward evolutionarily positive behavior. And it does that uh, by increasing the activity of this desire circuit. Now, what drugs of abuse do is they artificially stimulate this circuit. Um, sort of like hooking up electrodes and zapping it with power. Um, and what drugs do is that they stimulate the circuit more powerfully than any natural behavior. And it's giving this weird false signal to the brain because from the brain's point of view, the more dopamine a behavior elicits, the more important it is. Um, so for example, um, winning the lottery and getting $10 million produces a lot more dopamine than uh, a waiter getting a $5 tip um, <laughs> for serving a cup of coffee, for example. Mm -hmm. um, drugs of abuse give more dopamine than going to work, than eating food, than pursuing hobbies, than pursuing relationships. And so people will give up all of these important things to do nothing but pursue their drug. From the outside, it looks irrational. It, it looks crazy that people are destroying their lives um, by putting this toxic chemical in their body. But from the inside, from the point of view of dopamine, it actually makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And is it, is it the way that the addictive behavior or the, let's say, the, the drug or the substance is creating this uh, excessive dopamine, uh, not the other way around that the if a person has too much dopamine then they become like an addict uh, which 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 one comes first yeah it seems to be bi-directional um I, I think that probably pretty much anyone could get addicted with enough exposure to the toxic substance the addictive substance but certainly people are born with genes that make them more vulnerable hmm. um you know we do hear about people that have you know sort of dabbled in drugs perhaps in college and they said, you know what, I really didn't like it. And, and so I never got involved with it. Whereas other people will say, the first time I did drugs, it was the best thing that ever happened to me in my life. And boom, they're addicted immediately. Hmm. I, I once had um, a woman bring in her husband who was addicted to alcohol. And I think I was the fifth psychiatrist she had brought him to. Nobody had been able to help this man. And he told me that the first time he tasted alcohol, it was as if the sky opened up 
and the heavenly choir began to sing. <laughs> that experience was a result of a very specific genetic makeup. And, and, and this poor guy, he could not shake the habit um, because of his genetic vulnerability. Hmm. And I would imagine like the uh, like psychological environment or like the psychological development of the person is also like pretty important. Like uh, how were they raised? Uh, what's their childhood and, and so on? I think so. You know, we know a lot less about that. Um, that's probably the thing uh, that we know the least about. Um, you know, we know a little bit about the genetics and we know quite a bit about the effect of the addictive chemicals on the brain, but the psychology is a little tougher. Hmm. Well, yeah, it's definitely up, up for the hypothesis. Uh, but I'm also sure that you heard about this study where like scientists uh, placed these electrodes on the brains of rats. And uh, if the rats pressed the lever, they stimulated the, they gave themselves this shock to the brain's reward center. And the kind of rats kept pressing the lever to give them this electric shock again and again to experience this dopamine rush. And eventually they just uh, died to starvation. So you can like quite literally kill yourself because of your addictions, because the brain kind of gets hijacked. Yeah, exactly. They, they, they completely lost interest in food. Uh, they lost interest in everything. All they wanted to do was press that lever. Hmm. I, I think that the human analog of that is craving. Um, you know, we used to think that the essence of addiction was uh, physical dependence, um, tolerance and withdrawal. That people would use more and more of the substance because of tolerance, which is absolutely true but um, they would continue using because they would get withdrawal symptoms. And that looks like it's not true. Um, probably the reason people continue using is because of this phenomenon of craving. It's hmm. something we've all experienced. You know, you, you, you've made a decision, you're gonna try and eat more healthy. Somebody brings in a birthday cake to work. You see everybody enjoying that cake and you experience craving. And the odds are you're going to have trouble sticking to your resolution of eating healthier. Mm -hmm. um, craving does not eliminate free will, but it certainly diminishes it. And I think that that's a scary thing, that a chemical can affect our fundamental ability to make free choices. Yeah, and uh, the more cravings you experience or the more often you experience them, uh, if you have, like, for instance, cake surrounding you everywhere, <laughs> then eventually you're probably going to break and uh, that's going to create these additional cravings because more often than not, people are addicted to, for example, sugar or alcohol just because of uh, consuming it on a, like, a regular basis. And if you were to kind of uh, you know, avoid these processed foods for a certain period of time, then eventually you kind of lose the interest as well. Yeah, that's right. You know, in addiction treatment, we have a saying, it's better to be smart than strong. <laughs> a lot of people think that overcoming addiction is a matter of willpower. And that's absolutely not true. Uh, willpower only works a few times. And then like a muscle, it becomes fatigued. Mm -hmm. So if you resist the cake, um, and then later on, somebody offers you another sugary treat, it's going to be more difficult to resist that second one because you've used up your strength of willpower with the first one. So we say, be smart. Um, as you pointed out, get rid of all the triggers of craving from your environment. Um, don't go to bars and try and drink a diet Coke. Stay away. Get all the alcohol out of your house. 
even get rid of the glasses that you used to drink alcohol because anything that reminds you of the substance is going to trigger craving. And as soon as you get a craving, the odds are you're going to lose. Right. But what about, what about the problem that if you restrict yourself for too long and then you like rebound, for, for instance, you're on this zero sugar diet for weeks and then you accidentally eat some cake and then your body like creates this massive hyper response and you get this over overeating response. Uh, wouldn't that be like a, you know, like it's going to backfire in a sense if, you, if you're going to be restrictive uh, all the time? Yeah. You know, the technical term for that is the abstinence violation effect. Um, if you're on a diet and you've been really good for days, weeks, perhaps months, and then you blow it, you have a piece of cake, you have a cookie, the um, natural human reaction is to say, all right, I blew it. Um, I might as well go wild. Mm. Um, I, I had a cookie. I might as well eat the whole box. If you educate people to that and you say, listen, sometimes you're not going to be perfect. Sometimes you're going to fall down and you're going to give into the craving. Don't worry about it too much. That's part of the process. It doesn't mean that your efforts are over. Mm. Um, take a deep breath, put down the box of cookies and go back to your healthy eating. <laughs> yeah, because like, uh, ideally you would still want to uh, achieve this point where you're able to practice moderation and you don't have to go through these like massive swings back and forth so to say that you are either all in or all out and you know ideally you want to achieve moderation and uh, moderate your behavior uh, in real time and uh, I agree with you that you have to put the thing down so to say to, to uh, regain uh, your consciousness or self-control because if you're eating the cookies all the time uh, then you won't be able to distance yourself from the stimulus. And the, in my opinion, the way of overcoming any addiction is to, uh, at first, you have to kind of detox yourself from it and you have to kind of stop it for the time being. Yeah, I, I think the question of moderate use is a very interesting one. Um, I, I think that it's certainly possible to develop moderate eating habits. But a di more difficult question is, is it possible to develop moderate drinking habits after one has experienced an alcohol use problem. Mm. And we're pretty sure that for some people, the answer is no. Mm. For people who have experienced uh, severe problems with alcohol, they will be an extremely high risk of full relapse if they have even one single drink. Yeah. Um, more mild problems, some people can go back to moderate drinking, some people cannot. And we always ask the patient, weigh the risks and benefits. Why is it so important to drink moderately? Why is alcohol such an important thing in your life? Because you're rolling the dice. Um, you know, look what, it, look what it did to your life. It almost destroyed your marriage. You lost your job. It almost destroyed your health. Why would you be willing to put those things on the line in order to drink moderately? Yeah. And, and some people will ultimately decide, I don't care about the risk. I'm going to try it. Whereas a lot of people are going to say, I didn't think about it that way. My health is more important. Yeah. Well, yeah. Alcohol itself doesn't have like inherent benefits. <laughs> like it's not definitely healthy, even if you drink it in like very uh, moderation. Uh, but I, I would yeah, argue like things with like alcohol or drugs, it's much s smarter again to uh, avoid them in the first place to avoid the negative side effects. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How, absolutely. how would you how would you go about like, for instance, if someone is um, 
you know, they, they come to you as a, as a patient and they have some addictive, addictive problems, how would you go about uh, fixing it? Well, you know, um, there's a saying, people stop using drugs for one reason and one reason only, and that's because they want to. If you try to make someone stop using drugs, it's not going to work. Um, you know, they've been through this. Their loved ones have been trying to make them to stop. Perhaps their employer has. And they've gotten really good at resisting all of these efforts. And, and you're just gonna, it's just going to be an exercise in frustration. So mm -hmm. what I like to do is I like to explore with the patient um, the good things they see about the drug use, but also the bad things and see if we can find a patient's motivation for not using. And, and a lot of times, it would be completely unexpected. Uh, I treated this, this young woman college student who was binge drinking on the weekends. Every weekend, she'd go out to the club and she'd drink until she blacked out. And um, she would usually come to herself wandering around in some strange neighborhood, not knowing where she was. Now, this behavior terrified me for a number of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons was that she was putting herself at extremely high risk of sexual assault. And if that happened, that could be potentially something she would deal with for the rest of her life. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to shake her and say, what are you doing? Are, are you crazy? You've got to stop this behavior. But I knew that that probably wouldn't work. And it was more likely to just simply interfere with our therapeutic alliance, our ability to work together. So we explored together. One day, uh, she came into my office. She said, Dr. Lieberman, something terrible has happened. And I thought, oh my God, what's coming next? She said, I was drinking too much and I lost my backpack. And I said, what? And she said, no, no, you don't understand. I loved this backpack. It was the best backpack I ever had. And I've been thinking about what you're saying and I'm going to stop drinking. <laughs> so who would have guessed? God only knows why it was the backpack, but it didn't matter. She successfully stopped drinking. She found her own reason, and that was the reason that worked. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, also, that's a great story because, you know, more often than not, people quit their addictions if they get, like, some serious health condition or, yeah, something tragic happens, like, like in the case of this girl that could have happened. But fortunately, yeah. like, it's, it's much better to, you know, get your hands burnt uh, without, you know, burning off your entire arm, <laughs> so to say, or get your fingers burnt a little bit instead of losing the entire arm. So, uh, yeah, it's good to, good to kind of be, have the ability to learn uh, from your own mistakes and especially it would be better to learn from the mistakes of others so that's why I myself you know I'm not now I'm never going to do some drugs because I know what it's going to do to other, you know other people and I've seen it so it's not going to be uh, something on my list of what I want to do because I know it's going to have like serious consequences yeah yeah you know some people say that um, addicts have to hit rock bottom before they're ready to change and, and that may be true with some of them but it's definitely not true with most of them. And, um, you know, as, as healthcare professionals, we want to prevent problems as much as we can. Preventing is better than curing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we can get people who have not yet hit rock bottom, uh, they've not yet destroyed their lives and have them pull out of it. And what's important is that the earlier you catch this illness, the easier it is to treat. Um, I think of it like cancer. Um, you know, like cancer, it starts out small, 
and it gradually takes over a person's entire life. And like cancer, it's easiest to treat in the earliest stages. And um, that's why um, the recommendations are that primary care physicians screen for alcohol problems um, when they do annual checkups. Because screening identifies things that are not obvious. Once an alcohol or a drug use problem becomes obvious, it's progressed to the point where it's going to be harder to treat. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you catch it through screening, a lot of times people get much better with very brief interventions. Yeah. Prevention is the best medicine. It really is. Yeah. Uh, Have you heard of uh, this thing in social media where... um, Uh, it's pretty popular where people uh, do this dopamine fasting, so to say, they abstain from these dopamine increasing activities, like they stop watching porn, they stop sugar, they stop even social media itself, and uh, they essentially try to detox themselves to reset their dopamine. Uh, Is there like any scientific uh, validity to something like that, or what do you think about it? I think it's absolutely fantastic. You know, I, I I don't know if it's been scientifically tested. I I think probably not because it's relatively new, but it makes a whole lot of sense. And the reason why I I think it's so wonderful is because I think that in many ways, large parts of our economy are based on, I'm going to use a very strong word here. They're based on kind of enslaving us by taking advantage of technology's ability to stimulate our dopamine circuit. We know that pornography does it. We know that social media does it. And um, like with drugs, people will consume these things even though it's no longer giving them pleasure, even though it's making them miserable. I mean, I think we've all had the experience of scrolling a social media thing. And by the way, these scrolls go on forever, right? Uh, It used to be with the old internet that you would come to the end of a page. Uh, but now more and more content gets loaded as you get down. And again, this, this demonstrates a sophisticated understanding of how to exploit a victim's dopamine circuit. Anyway, we're scrolling along this endless scroll. We're bored. Um, we're unhappy. But we keep going. Mm-hmm. We keep going because our dopamine circuits are forcing us to, even though it's not giving us pleasure or happiness. Yeah, it's, it's so true that... Um... Um, for instance, the social media is definitely trying to hook people into becoming addicts to social media, but uh, the food industry is also kind of, it's responsible for a lot of the obesity and uh, medical problems because people are just eating this uh, hyper palatable food that is just specifically designed to be addictive and uh, stimulate these uh, dopamine receptors. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, and I don't know, you may know, does the dopamine fast also include uh, avoiding processed foods? Uh, well, I would imagine that, uh, yeah, like if a person is already trying to do something like that, then they would probably avoid all the sugars and the extra carbs as well. Uh, but yeah, yeah pr- probably it depends. I think it also would depend on the person's goals. Like if they don't want, to, if they don't suffer like problems with uh, sugar or something, then they may not need it. But yeah, usually people do it with uh all all things together like uh, they stop watching porn and sugar and uh and uh, social media yeah you know the dopamine system gets desensitized very easily uh with drug abuse we call it tolerance people need more and more of the drug to get the same high but Mm -hmm. we see it with these behavioral addictions as well for example with pornography 
people will start out looking at fairly tame images, um, maybe quite infrequently. And if they develop addictions, uh, they will go on to more and more uh, extreme portrayals of sexual acts, spend more and more time with it. And I, I think if you can do this detoxification, you can resensitize your circuits mm -hmm. and bring yourself back to a point where relative moderate consumption will give you the satisfaction that you're looking for. Yeah, totally. And, uh, you know, that applies especially the food, like if you stop eating sugar, and then you reintroduce it, then it almost becomes like very unbearable or very stimulating. And like natural sugars, or you know, even bland vegetables that become actually very tasty, uh, once you have allowed your taste receptors to uh, reset. Yeah, yeah. And, and it sounds like such a positive thing to do. And, and it's so hard in our society because, as you said, we're bombarded by these hyper palatable foods. Mm. Well, yeah, at, at the same time, like uh, uh, I would still put a lot of some responsibility on the individual as well that, you know, everyone knows that the uh, over overstimulation of these uh, circuits can become a problem. And at the same time, they have to be kind of just uh, especially careful in terms of uh, not going off the rails completely and you can you can be very healthy with moderation uh, but the problem is yeah, that it tends to be designed uh, to to be consumed in excess all the time so yeah like people have to uh, just uh, become more aware of these things all the time and uh, like just uh, practice uh, good 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 uh, hygiene in terms of like their food as well as their social media you raise a really interesting question, uh, and that is to what degree should we expect people to exert self-control, and to what degree should we use the force of law to um, protect people from being exposed to these things? Um, I, I think that nobody would argue with using the force of law to protect people from things like methamphetamine, for example, mm -hmm. and that, that makes perfect sense. Um, should we should we regulate sugar consumption and, and a big question now is to what degree should we regulate marijuana consumption mm -hmm. um and, and i think that if we regulate too much we run the risk of infantilizing people mm -hmm. sending the message you're not responsible for your behavior you're simply a victim of the corporations and other influences in your environment on the other hand if we regulate too little we may be setting up a real unfair competition, you know, the mm -hmm. individual against Nestle's and Hershey's. Um, yeah. it, it, they've got all of these resources to hire scientists to figure out ways to bypass people's self-control. And, and I don't know what the answer is. I, yeah. I, I think it's really important that people have autonomy. Uh, at the same time, I think it's really unfair um, what's being done to the public in terms of exploiting their natural biology. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't know the answer either. Like, <laughs> although like I myself uh, would be just fine if we abolished, you know, processed food and uh, sugar, sugary foods uh, from the entire world, I wouldn't mind. But at the same time, uh, I wouldn't think it's like mandatory to do it either. And I think it's like fine, you know, as long as people know how to, as long as people, I think it's, it's most important to just raise the awareness about it because a lot of the times people just don't know 
uh, that how these how these uh, foods are supposed to work and how they affect the human uh, brain. So as and after that, after they become aware of these things, then they may become more. They may just achieve more control as well, just because of knowing the information. Yeah, but you know, let, let's say we did abolish all of these highly processed sugary foods. Um, what's the next step? Do we abolish salt? Yeah. Yeah. Do we abolish recliners, um, you know, where people lie around instead of exercising? Do we abolish cars and, and force people to walk and take public transportation? Um, you know, it, it reminds me of that, um, of that book, uh, which was made into a film by Stanley Kubrick, uh, A Clockwork Orange, hmm. where you had this horrific criminal who, who just preyed on innocent people in awful ways, who was arrested and they used an experimental procedure on him to make him incapable of carrying out bad acts. Um, and the question is, what happens to human morality when we no longer have to make these decisions, when um, all we can do is behave in a good way? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's good for society, but is that really what it means to be a human being? Yeah, and especially like what's what's the role of uh, human rights and freedom, so to say, of of being able to make our own decisions. Right. I mean, what does freedom have value? A and if it does, how do you balance the value of freedom against the balance of good health? Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are uh, really important questions. <laughs> uh, but I wanted to touch upon like the the aspect of uh, what's the difference between uh, the feeling of uh, reward from you know dopamine and uh, other fulfilling activities like your relationships and those things or achieving your goals like the positive side of dopamine uh, what's the what's the difference between uh, getting dopamine from you know hugging a loved one versus getting dopamine from from you know uh, watching porn or something yeah, that's a great question. So um, I, I think it goes back to the idea that dopamine is future oriented. So we get dopaminergic pleasure when we experience something that's going to make our future better. Uh, so for example, being told you're going to get a raise at work, um, anticipating a wonderful meal, um, scoring a soccer goal, you know, all of these things create a dopamine pleasure, which is an excited pleasure an enthusiastic pleasure, an energizing pleasure. That's different from the kind of pleasure you get from hugging a loved one. Hugging a loved one gives you satisfaction, contentment, fulfillment. These are not about the future things. And so they actually don't involve dopamine. They involve neurotransmitters that process things in the present. Um, the thing that gives you pleasure when you hug someone is going to be endorphin and oxytocin. Um, and it's a different kind of pleasure. Some people who are very, very dopaminergic actually feel uncomfortable with the here and now pleasures of um, endorphin and hugging and that sort of thing. It feels too touchy-feely and they flee it, always living their life, thinking about the future, pursuing dopamine and foregoing things like contentment, satisfaction and fulfillment. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, oxytocin is... Uh... It's, it's called like the love hormone or the, love, the hormone of connection or something like that. Yep, that's right. That's right. Um, and yeah, that, that's, that's something that we experience in the present moment. Um, and in some ways it competes with dopamine. Um, dopamine says, go out there and work, make the future better. Oxytocin says, 
nurture your relationship with this person. Uh, enjoy being with them in the present moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you you can actually take like um, I, I I think I, I think yeah, you probably heard that you know even hogging a person for a few seconds releases uh, oxytocin a lot. So uh, you should uh, probably consider hogging people or touch physical touch in general as a, like a supplement in terms of that you give yourself this uh, positive surge of uh, oxytocin every day. Yeah, I think we tend to underestimate just how pleasurable social contact can be. Um, there, there was a study looking at the brain's pleasure response, and um, it looked at what happens when somebody just smiles at you. And um, then it looked at what happens when people give you money. And they kept raising the amount of money they gave to their research volunteers until the brain's pleasure response matched the spontaneous social smile. I think it was $70. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's quite funny. And especially in the modern world, like people are more isolated and uh, loneliness is becoming like an epidemic almost. Yeah. So, you know, you're walking down the street, giving somebody a warm smile uh, is perhaps not so different from pulling out your wallet and giving them $70. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Uh, that's, yeah, you can actually take like some supplemental oxytocin now as well. Like, uh, I think it's some, 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 uh, like pills have it and some uh, nasal or like uh, you, you can breathe in some oxytocin. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, you know, it's been tested a lot in psychiatric illnesses such as autism and social anxiety. It's not hugely practical because um, you can't take it in pill form. The uh, stomach acids destroy the molecule. Mm -hmm. You've got it do it as a nasal spray. And I think the effect only lasts an hour or so it, it may be even less. Right. So it, it's kind of an exciting way to change the functioning of the brain, but it's tough to implement in practice. I, I think what we need is for a pharmaceutical company to come up with a molecule that, that's different from oxytocin, nevertheless stimulates the oxytocin receptor and can be taken in pill form once a day. Hmm. Yeah, or, to, or you can just hog a person. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's probably, it's probably smarter, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, what about uh, serotonin, which is also like more, more, more relaxation and fulfillment? Yeah, that's right. Serotonin is another molecule that tends to um, coordinate brain's activity in the present moment, not the future. It, it seems to regulate mood, um, anxiety, feelings of safety, um, and, and emotions are something we experience in the present moment when we project ourselves into the future, we tend to take a very logical, rational, emotionless approach. What is going to make my life better? What kinds of plans shall I make? Whereas in the present, we're more influenced by emotion and, and serotonin plays a role in that. Mm -hmm. And uh, what are maybe what are some problems related to serotonin imbalances? You know, um, I treated a patient once who, um, you know, serotonin gives us a feeling that everything is okay, that we're in a safe environment and we don't need to worry too much. And I had a patient come in who had um, the opposite problem. He, he, was, he was always fearful. He was always anxious. He was always afraid. He couldn't take public transportation because if somebody simply jostled him, it would create this overwhelming feeling of agitation and fear. Mm -hmm. So I treated him with a medication that, um, that modified the serotonin sim, uh, system 
and he got better. He went back to his normal self. It, 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 was, it, it was a dramatic improvement. It, it was a wonderful success. But he said, hey, doc, let's see what happened if we raised the dose. You know, this, mm -hmm. this is an amazing thing. I'm just kind of curious. What would more do? And, and he was not on a terribly high dose. It would be a reasonably safe thing to do. So we gave it a try. And he came back and he said, he said, I love the way this makes me feel, but I don't get out of bed in the morning because I'm so satisfied. I'm so content with my life. It doesn't seem like there's any need to do anything. So we had to go back down uh, mm -hmm. to the previous level. So, so I think that that shows it to you on both sides. Um, people who are very high serotonin really take things as they come. Um, sometimes we see that in... Um, in politicians, um, Bill Clinton was described as a very high serotonin guy. I um, mean, he had all kinds of scandals with all kinds of women, and it never seemed to bother him. He was always <laughs> sunny and happy and slapping you on the back and in a good mood. Um, and that's what serotonin gives you. It, it just makes you calm and easy, and you take things as they come. Hmm. Maybe he was taking some sort of a drug to boost serotonin. <laughs> It's possible. It's possible. Although I tell you what, the drug is very effective for treating illnesses, but it probably won't make, you know, people who are within the range of normal but have low serotonin into one of these happy-go-lucky backslapping guys. Right. Um, That's un necessarily not good either because you'll become like loitering and uh, unmotivated. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's very... Very, very true. Yes, yeah, psychiatric medications do, do a, a very good job in, in many cases of helping cure illnesses. But um, to some people's disappointment, they don't do a good job of making healthy people healthier. Right. Yeah, that's for sure. And like, if you don't need a drug, then it's better to just don't not take it. Take it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, what about uh, SSRIs and antidepressants or these opioids? I, I, I've heard like there's this massive opioid crisis. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so just so SSRIs are basically what I was um, referring to when I was talking about these serotonin modifying medications. Mm -hmm. But yeah, moving on to opioids, they're probably, with the exception perhaps of methamphetamine, opioids may be the most addictive substances. Um, people really underestimate how dangerous they are. Um, you know, one of the things that we've encountered is an opioid crisis of people taking prescription opioid medications. And I think that what happens is that people assume that because these are things that are legal, they're prescribed by physicians, they're taken by people who are in pain, generally very safely, that it must be safe. Mm -hmm. But when it's taken not for therapeutic purposes to treat pain, but for recreational purposes, it can lead to addiction in lightning speed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, definitely something that is very easy to uh, fall down the rabbit hole, so to say. It's it's true. It really is. Uh, well, yeah, it's been it's been great uh, talking with you, and we can definitely go much deeper with all these topics. But I'm I wanted to start uh, wrapping things up as well. Uh, before I ask my last question, uh, or is there like anything else that you would like to add about the book that we didn't cover? You know, we didn't talk about love. We touched on it briefly. And I think it's a really important thing to know. Um, you know, when people fall in love, it is a life-changing moment. 
Uh, some people say it is the most pleasurable, most ecstatic experience that human beings have. Um, and we call that passionate love. And an important thing to know about that is that it only lasts about 12 to 18 months. And, you know, people always ask, why does love fade? And the answer to that question is that's the way the brain is designed. The brain is designed only to have this passionate love for 12 to 18 months. After that, it's got to evolve from a dopaminergic experience, which is this ecstatic, exciting, passionate love, into a serotonin, oxytocin, endorphin experience of the here and now. And we call that companionate love. And you see that in couples that have been together for a while, they're best friends, they're, they're satisfied, they're content, they're fulfilled. Um, it's not as exciting as passionate love, but it's a wonderful experience. And hmm. people need to know that when passionate love fades, it's not an indication that there's something wrong with the relationship. That's the natural history of love. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I never uh, thought of it, but it makes sense that you should be passionate initially when you meet the new partner because you want to procreate, uh, but eventually you would have to kind of settle down and then you need more of the oxytocin and serotonin so that you wouldn't you know, abandon your offspring or something like that. So it perfectly makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. And yeah, and there's people who are addicted to this passionate love and yeah. they go from partner to partner to partner, never settling down and establishing a really deep relationship. Yeah, so that's why like sometimes if if people break up or they want to create this uh, more more passionate love again or some novelty, then it's probably because of some craving for some dopamine or something. Yeah, I think that that's right. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah, people should then uh, kind of know that okay, maybe I maybe I need to satisfy my dopamine rush with something else instead of uh, breaking up immediately. Or you, who knows, maybe it's probably better to break up. <laughs> Well, maybe, maybe, but I think that they also need to realize that there's a different kind of pleasure awaiting them, uh, the, the companionate pleasure, and that that's worth pursuing. Mm, yeah. Well, it's been great talking with you. And uh, where can people learn more about uh, your book and uh, your work? Well, it's available on uh, Amazon. It's available in bookstores. Um, there's a website, uh, moleculeofmore.com. And they can learn more about my work at Daniel Z, Z is in zebra, danielzlieberman.com. Great. We're going to put all the links in the show notes. And uh, my last question is, uh, what's this one piece of advice or a habit you wish you adopted sooner? Meditation. Um, uh, it's very, very hard to do. But I think that um, scientific studies have shown us that um, it has a wide variety of benefits and I think it's something that will strengthen our minds to help us do a better job of balancing the pursuit of dopamine with the enjoyment of the here and now. Yeah, I totally agree. And meditation definitely teaches you uh, that these short, like short dopamine brushes, they may not be worth it. And that, you know, it's not, it's not worth it to uh, eat the donut if you're trying to lose weight. And it definitely also teaches you how to stay more mindful uh, about all these distractions that we talked about, whether that be with food, social media, or pornography, or anything else. So you kind of become more grounded as a person. It's a powerful exercise for the brain that, yeah, it strengthens it in so many ways. All right. Well, that's good. Good uh, note to end the show. And uh, thanks for coming. Uh, do you have like any other books uh, in the making? Uh, yeah, I'm currently working on a book that's going to focus on the unconscious mind and uh, the enormous role it plays in our lives that 
people are largely unaware of. All right, that sounds that sounds cool. We we, we should uh, schedule another podcast then. I'd love to do that. That would be fantastic. All right. Well, thanks for coming, and I'll see you around. All right. Thank you for having me.